The Road Home has a bonus interview for you this week, which adds some context to our full-length episode we released last week. The bonus interviews are intended to get further insights from the experts, hear more in-depth about funding sources, clarify any questions you all may have about methods for implementation, and draw more of a direct connection between feature developments and NCHB's long-standing community-level efforts. If you've not already listened to the full-length episode, I encourage you to check it out as this interview supplements some of the information we've already discussed during our talk about the development last week on the Road Home Podcast. Um, so I have a very special guest for you guys today. I'm going to let her go ahead and introduce herself. Uh, hi, thanks for having me. I'm Michelle Wildman. I'm the Senior Vice President for Community Development at the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to have you. Um, So before we get into some Q&A, will you just briefly explain, I guess, your role in your department and kind of the role of your department maybe for the state? Sure. Um, So the MEDC is uh, focused on economic development. It's the state's economic development organization. Um, Specifically in community development, we are focused on Um, you know, projects that create place, uh, real estate projects, revitalization of Michigan towns, commercial corridors. um, And, you know, really it's, it's a, uh, MEDC is, you know, equally focused on, on both um, creating community, but also incentivizing economic development. And we see that as sort of, um, you know, both both critical to have a comprehensive economic development strategy. Gotcha. And then just so I'm understanding right, your office um, would be over the state, both um, just, you know, I guess, statewide goals for community development, but then also, I guess you kind of align your priorities with the local priorities for each city within the state. We do. We rely, uh, you know, those local partnerships are really critical because, you know, we know um, what works in Marquette doesn't necessarily work in Detroit. So really those we we offer incentives statewide, but we really rely on those local partnerships to help us um, implement and identify the projects that are going to be most responsive at the local level. Gotcha. And so then you would obviously have partnerships from um, community development offices at the local level, planning, zoning, those kind of things. But at the state level, are there any other departments or agencies that y'all work very closely with? Oh, sure. There's a number of uh, statewide partners that we work with. CDM, for example, um, uh, MML, uh, the Michigan Municipal League uh, for our local government relationships, a number of statewide CDFIs that partner on, um, you know, different or various incentive tools that are uh, leveraged into projects, bringing in uh, federal resources whenever possible, as well as other state agencies that may be participating in infrastructure or some of the um, uh, roads with MDOT, you know, whatever the whatever the various uh, project that we're speaking of is. Gotcha. And then just so I'm clear, the first one, CEDEM, is that what what does that stand for? Uh, Community Development Association of Michigan. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Um. So before we get into questions like 
I guess, strongly tied to overall community development for the project specifically. Um, I'm not entirely clear, but what state funding was awarded to this project? And if any was directly awarded from your office, can you just clarify which funding sources they were? Sure. Um, well, they received a uh, loan under the Michigan Community Revitalization Program. Um, they also um, received a uh, $2.5 million Michigan Brownfield tax credit. Um, that's an, that's an, a, a incentive that doesn't exist uh, anymore in its current form, but there were some applications and they had a, you know, um, a period to implement them. And so that was, there was an amendment done to allow the use of that credit uh, in this particular project, um, as well as there was, a, we review when there is a request under Act 831 for uh, Brownfield tax capture, we, we also approve that in this case there was. Um, there was a $2.1 million uh, on the state portion anyway. There's also a local brownfield approval process. Um, we, we work pretty closely in partnership with the local uh, brownfield organizations. Um, but in this case, we reviewed the state portion, and, and that was um, awarded for this project as well. Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of the funding sources that at least come from your office would be um, specific to Michigan. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and then I guess I was under the impression as well, the Brownfields credit tax credit is discontinued, but the, um, the Michigan community revitalization program is a continuous thing. And will you just explain, I guess, how that is sourced or where that funding comes from? And if there's any sort of unique ways that you guys use that funding that maybe other States, um, could learn from as far as their community revitalization funds. Yeah, so um, the CRP program is a an appropriate, it's a state-appropriated source. Um, we receive an annual allocation from, uh, through the, you know, the state budgeting process, and um, some amount of that goes into our, our business development programs, and then um, some of it goes into the um, funding the, the CRP program. And then we use that to uh, provide grants and loans to projects throughout the state um, that meet a, a set of criteria uh, and and those go into projects um, in the form of loans or grants. Perfect. And then I guess from a state perspective, when people are applying for these various funding sources, how do you guys determine the worthiest projects for state funding? I know when we speak to local level, you know, financing offices, they have more specific targets and goals. And it seems almost easy to imagine the projects that would win funding. But from the state level, it's such a large space. And like you said, the communities are so different. So do you guys use any sort of general measure to determine the worthiest projects? Uh, sure. So, um, well, first of all, we have uh, field staff. We call it the CAT team, community assistance team. Um, we have a, and that's a field-based staff person that we have in each, um, each of Michigan's regions. Um, and so that person really works 
closely with local units of government within their region in order to identify the projects that are most likely uh, to, uh, you know, to to meet, you know, mutually established goals. Um, At the state level, um, we are, of course, looking for alignment with our strategic plan, um, along with statutory requirements, but we're also looking at projects that are going to really help drive the, the the place components that are critical in an economic development strategy. Um, things that we look at, for example, uh, in addition to um, like there's different place, like is there density? Is it in a commercial corridor? Are there going to be affordable housing components? Um, is it in a geographically disadvantaged area? Is it taking a a vacant space and repurposing it for, um, you know, for a new use that's going to really uh, support a local economic development strategy, you know, that kind of thing. Wh- which city priorities uh, does it does it align with? Those are all considerations that we would uh, make before awarding funds to a transaction. And those awards are done by, um, you know, b- by a board, the, the Michigan Strategic Fund Board. And, um, and then, rec- but those recommendations being made by staff and those those field staff are really critical in the, the local conversations that they're having with local planning officials before making those recommendations to the MSF board. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing, and like we've done a lot of con- uh, conversation throughout this series, talking with local level leaders and then developers themselves and then state level leaders, But when you talk to people at the state level, it really all comes back to what they're choosing at the local level, which like circles back to how much community participation is involved, how much people are stepping up to say, like, this is what we need to see in our community. This is what we want our communities to look like, or these are our priorities. So in my mind, it's almost seems that more, much more important to participate in those local things and to get involved at the local level, because what I'm hearing is the state's choices are based off of a lot of the local choices and priorities and and things that, you know, people at the local most level see as top, top of their priority list. Absolutely. Um, You know, we're of course looking to local officials, but also those, the, the venues and mechanisms that they have at the local level for that local uh, public input into um, the incentives that are awarded are, are really critical to make sure that we're we're best aligning uh, the the state's limited sources with what's going to be most beneficial from an economic development standpoint at the local level. Right. Okay. So I want to circle back and talk a little bit about the Sugar Hill developments um, and kind of retouch on topics that we talked about in the first half of this um, week's feature project and then um, get into some of the takes from your your state perspective about how the project supported local development goals. So just, I guess, first off, how does the Sugar Hill mixed use development fit within the overall community development goals for that specific area? Like what major, I guess, checklist points did that development uh, suit? Sure. Well, of course, it was strongly supported by the city of Detroit. Um, we got 
uh, various incentives at the local level. Um, it supported mixed income neighborhoods. It's especially important in the Midtown area um, as it's continued to grow. Um, the building design itself balances um, both the tenants of urban design that ensure mass density and scale um, and, you know, that that's appropriate for the wood Woodward Corridor, but also acknowledged, um, acknowledged, acknowledged, I'm sorry, the, um, the history of the surrounding neighborhood. Um, there were infrastructure considerations using a sustainable approach to managing stormwater through an integrated parking structure was one of the components um, that was important that we looked at. Uh, again, also um, demonstrating that it really had that that local support um, had gone through the local approval processes uh, relative to the incentives and, and local uh, tax abatements that were awarded. Mm -hmm. And so you spoke a little bit about the parking garage and then I guess some of the more infrastructural um, benefits of the project, but what other direct um, impact does this property have on the community or what other benefits does this property have for the community? Uh, you know, solving housing problems downtown as well as redeveloping spaces that small businesses can move into. Um, those are critical important or those are critical pieces um, in our work to make Michigan an attractive place, helping to incentivize talent um, coming into our neighborhoods and communities. Um, the development activated a long time vacant tax reverted property into a dense mixed use, mixed income development. Um, as we work to build an equitable, resilient economy, uh, we're looking closer than ever at how we incorporate affordable housing options or units into the project uh, to really support underserved populations throughout Michigan. Uh, this project did that. Uh, you know, as well as um, providing needed uh, needed parking and uh, a design that would be uh, contextually appropriate for the uh, surrounding neighborhood and historic districts. Right, right. I thought it was so interesting in that way that it solved so many, or uh, I guess addressed so many of the community's needs um, and then had the affordable housing component and then took it even a step further to say, okay, we're going to specifically target these units to special populations, which that's closely aligns with, you know, the kind of projects we were featuring for this series, just because they took it an extra step to make sure that veterans were included in the project. And it was almost surprising when we sat down with the city, they said that of eight proposals they received, that was the only one that that went a step further than their very basic requirements of affordable housing. So, yeah, I found that very interesting. I guess from, uh, well, you pretty well explained, I guess, how you guys identify community needs. You rely m mostly on what local feedback you're getting and then also your local partnerships. Um, yeah, so and we, you know, we actually meet regularly with uh, with city staff. We we sit down and, and quite literally look at a, uh, list of potential projects and, you know, really work to identify which of those are going to be the best fit within uh, local resources. So that dialogue and local partnership is really important for carrying out our work throughout the state. Hmm. 
And you talked a little bit too about getting involved. You know, I know one of the ways people can is to participate in planning meetings when they have public, you know, participation sessions. And this developer was unique too. He told me, or he told me, Preservation of Affordable Housing told me that they would host community charrettes where they would have people actually sit in and make um, and voice their opinion about what the property would look like and what they needed to see and what they thought their community needed. Um, so I think our audience at least would have some familiarity at this point with ways that they can get involved at a local level. Is there any other ways that they can go directly to the state to communicate like, hey, my my community is not, my needs are not being met or this population's needs are not being met. Is there any other ways to directly point that out to the state? just bypass local planning or, or to kind of, um, I guess, couple with their efforts at the local level. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, with some of our incentives, uh, for example, uh, not, this is not necessarily, uh, um, applicable in Detroit, but with, uh, we do have formal, uh, process, our own formal input processes for our incentives, CDBG, for example, we award that at the States, Detroit gets their own. So we wouldn't go into a Detroit project, but, um, you know, those are, are the planning processes around those are ways to give formal comment. Um, we also do surveys. Uh, we, we, have surveys both at the municipal level for local governments, for developers, uh, as well as for lenders. Um, and we use that data to, uh, you know, help inform how we put tools out into the community. We also have field staff that actually live in the regions. Um, that's, that's one of the things they live in the regions that, they're representing. So they're really interacting in community and, and hearing that local feedback um, in, you know, all of that helps inform how we, how we award incentives. Mm -hmm. And so I guess for our network of members and like the community providers we work with, some of the roles they could fit is maybe keeping an ear out when these kind of surveys are posted and encouraging people that we work with to go and give feedback or um, I know CDBG and for the most part, like Litech and Home, I even think they they open um, public comment periods at the state level. And you just said, y'all do the same. And I, I guess it's required of every state to kind of do the same. So how does that work? You make an announcement just saying, hey, this is a period where we're um, considering public input. You guys have any opinions about this? Or you see any ways that we could be considering to use this funding? Please make comments or how does it actually work? Yep, yep, that's exactly right. Um, there are, are public hearings, um, um, mostly virtually held at the moment, of course, <laughs> given the right. given the circumstances of the world. Um, there's postings on our website, uh, the, the, uh, and frankly, all the incentives uh, are approved at that, you know, by the Michigan Strategic Fund. That's a public body. Um, they have public meetings where there is an opportunity for public comment. So um, there's always that mechanism as well. Right, right. And it's a little bit harder to ask individuals to be like tracking this and checking obsessively. But uh, as community level providers or as organizations that have strong community presence, it seems like it wouldn't be a very hard thing to do to kind of follow that and look for those periods and encourage people to um, get involved or at least sit in and learn about how funding's being used at their state level. You know what I mean? Especially with the climate we're living in right now with COVID and you know, some of the other things going on surrounding the election and things like that, people are paying more attention to how 
uh, fundings being used. So if you're curious, it's there. There's avenues definitely to to learn more about the way your state's spending their money. Um, so I guess to wrap up the the comments about the Sugar Hill mixed use development and kind of how it played a role in community development, is there any other um, I guess ties or ways that you have seen a direct investment in affordable housing or targeted units for special populations that they it, this type of work might contribute to further economic or community development? Yeah, workforce housing um, is crucial to economic to the economic viability of a community. One of the single most important things a business is looking for when considering uh, where to open or where um, where they might expand is access to talent. Uh, ensuring that there's appropriate housing provides Michigan with a competitive advantage in attracting new investments to the state. Our quality of life combined with relatively low cost of living is a diff, uh, you know, sets us apart here in Michigan. So our efforts in community development are really helping to create that sense of place that talent not only wants to live, um, but places that they can afford to live as well. Right, right. And I guess people, you know, they question why some communities might get chosen over others or some states over others for further economic investment. And you and and several of the other interviewees that we've had on this series have explained that, that you need housing. And one of the things people do look at is, you know, who can afford to live in the communities and can people I would employ um, live somewhere where they could get back and forth to work? Like that's one of the first things they look at to make those choices. So that makes perfect sense. Um, I guess to kind of close this out and to to put it more in perspective with the rest of the series and then the other episodes and projects we've been featuring, a lot of people talk about challenges to building affordable housing projects, but also this mixed income, mixed use type development. So I guess, are there any specific challenges that are outside of funding that you might see that make it harder to pencil out this type of development? Yeah, well, outside of the availability of housing or of funding, I'm sure is what you're referring to. Um, there, the definitely, uh, there's of course the challenge of balancing the affordability of rents. You know, we're trying to keep the rents affordable in order to, you know, be responsive to what local residents can afford. That's kind of where we come in uh, and why the incentives that we have are critical in making these projects, bringing them to reality. We help with um, funding that helps to fill that gap uh, to cover the cost between the cost of development and and what they're going to generate through rents, you know, while desiring to keep them affordable. Construction costs, of course, um, are, are a challenge, particularly in Detroit, um, it's a good indicator overall of um, the resurgence of the city, but it does create challenges for projects like this. Um, the development team in this case was able to work with the city of Detroit to secure those critical sources to, to help cover that gap and, and, you know, in this case, bring the project to reality. Mm-hmm. And I know when we spoke with the city 
um, the the interviewee that we had spoke a lot about the tools that they use to encourage, but also require developers to include affordable housing in their plans and also to kind of speed the process up at a local level and um, show their commitment, I guess, to building these type of developments that are mixed income, mixed use, have affordable housing components. Um, but is there any other tools that we usually, when we do the announcements for the weeks in the podcast that we're featuring, um, we kind of point people to um, examples and, and links or um, send them on like a quest, I guess, or give them little mini assignments of things they can look at and bring to their own states or, you know, just educate them about things that um, their states maybe could could look into doing a little bit better. So is there any tools that Michigan specifically has to ease this process? And is there anything, um, you know, that maybe other people could look into if they're hearing this episode and think, oh, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. And I want to make sure my state's doing stuff at that same level and considering those same factors or finding those same priorities. Um, so is there any tools that Michigan uses? And um, what should people look at if they wanted to kind of learn more about the way you guys do this so strategically? Uh, well, you know, one of the things that we um, that we do here in Michigan is um, our technical assistance programming. That's one of the things that sets Michigan's community development programs apart from other community development programs in other states. Uh, you know, I would say the the incentives may differ a little bit from state to state uh, relative to how we the gap fillers we use to to fund projects like Sugar Hill, but in Michigan our redevelopment ready services program is available to all Michigan communities. It's a voluntary no cost certification program that's designed to promote effective redevelopment strategies through implementation of a set of best practices. So we have staff who will work, they, you know, they work throughout Michigan. Um, there's some uh, communities that are already RRC certified, but basically it helps through technical assistance provided to local units of government, helps um, helps them really uh, lay out the framework to become redevelopment ready, looking at their processes, um, streamlining when possible, making them very transparent for both developers and the public to understand um, and, you know, really working on efficiencies to, you know, to help promote that um, development at the local level. So I would say that the, the technical assistance that we bring to the table helps uh, both at the state level and, you know, even more so at the local level, um, folks to really be proactive and um, consider those development opportunities and how that's going to best uh, promote their local economic development strategy. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And I did do a little bit of like digging myself and I thought that that was such a good idea to um, get, make communities like make their own efforts to get certified so that they become like focal points of attention for this kind of work. So I don't know if I understood it completely right, but I definitely encourage everybody to go out and take a look at that. And maybe it seems like you guys have such a good working relationship with local level um, decision makers and local level financers and planners and stuff. And I don't, it doesn't always seem that way for every state. So I feel like that's super unique and maybe something that um, people listening to this can go and, you know, just encourage their states to kind of follow in you guys' footsteps. Yeah, um, we've actually been nationally recognized uh, for the site ready programs. Um, and, you know, we feel that gives us a huge competitive advantage in carrying out this work. Right, 
Right. And I know in just general conversation, Detroit more so, but you know, I guess maybe just because of some of the other things that have gone on surrounding Detroit in recent years, it's like, it's so impressive. Some of the things that you guys are doing as a state and that they're doing there as a city. So I definitely, yeah, I encourage everybody to go and check it out. I just wanted to say thank you so, so much for participating in the interview. I felt like that was such great information. I really appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, good opportunity to talk about what we do. So thanks for having me on. Curious about this episode or want to learn more about the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans, visit nchb.org or search NCHB on social media. The road home may be a long and winding one. However, the journey ends once every veteran has a permanent, stable, and affordable place to call home. Thank you again and see you all next week.